The views expressed in this podcast are those of the speaker at the time of the recording are not necessarily those of Jupiter and may change in the future. Jupiter is unable to provide investment advice, so we recommend you discuss any investment decision with a financial advisor. Market and exchange rate movements can cause investment values to fall as well as rise, and you may get back less than originally invested. Any data or views given in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice. Hello, I'm Ashley Cowie, and this is the latest episode in the Jupiter podcast series. 2020 has been an unpredictable year by anyone's standards, and this has been no different for the world of bonds. For years, politicians have handed over the responsibility of stimulating economies to central banks. But this year has been different. Governments have stepped up and started spending. And although interest rates are pinned to the floor as government debt burdens reach their highest levels outside of wartime, other deflationary forces such as ageing populations and digital technology haven't gone away. So against this backdrop and the good news of a vaccine, what could bond investors expect from 2021? And who better to pick this apart than our Head of Fixed Income Strategy, Ariel Bezalel, and Fixed Income Fund Manager, Harry Richards. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, hiya. Hi. So let's start with a big talking point at the moment. Uh, Why are some people so concerned about inflation when others would argue that developed economies have been hopeless at generating it? Yeah, well, over the last 12 months, there's definitely been a, a real pickup in the uh, debate between, you know, we set for inflation or we set for more of the same deflation. And, and uh, you know, there's been uh, definitely a pickup about inflation concerns in recent months, uh, really driven by um, the enormous amounts of stimulus we've seen from central banks around the world. Um, and we've also seen governments uh, move into full swing in terms of um uh, backstopping the economy and uh, backstopping corporates. We've seen generous schemes. And there's also a lot of talk about uh, more being done by the uh, the US administration. In turn, we've seen inflation expectations picking up a bit in, in the bond markets. Yeah, I mean, I think I think on the other side of the coin, you know, when we think about the longer term, what we haven't seen go away are some of the issues that you mentioned, actually, like the debt demographics and, and disruption uh, problems uh, that, that face uh, face us and have actually been secular tailwinds for lower bond yields over time. And we would argue, actually, that the debt levels have got a lot worse during this crisis and, and that burden has is, is increased. Uh, debt levels now uh, around $277 trillion. So nearly $20 trillion of debt has been added to the global economy this year. Uh, and there's going to be a lot of economic scarring as well, which we think will will provide a challenge to the reflation narrative. So the International Air Transport Association, IATA, is saying that they don't expect air travel to return uh, to 2019 levels until 2024. So we see a lot of, a lot of challenges to it. And, and finally, from a policy uh, standpoint, um, you know, Japan has really been the template for uh, central bank and government intervention over the last 20 to 30 years. And they've done it all. They've done a change in the uh, inflation targeting regime uh, from the central bank. They've, they've done fiscal, they've done yield curve control and, uh, and quantitative easing to a, to a vast extent. And they haven't managed to generate any inflation. So if we're only going to see those tools used again, really, why should we expect a different outcome? So those scars could 
continue to cause problems going forwards. Um, If we're to say potentially optimistically that the disruption from the pandemic is now behind us, are we likely to still be awaiting an aftershock? And how likely are we to see a wave of insolvencies and bankruptcies next year? That that's spot on. So we do we do tend to see a lag between when there's peak fear and actually when you have things like peak insolvency or peak bankruptcy. We saw it in the last few crises, and that's because it takes a while for the economic reality to to permeate through to uh, to, to these businesses and actually end up tipping them over. And so the starting point is that a lot of these corporates have a lot of leverage. And the second uh, thing we have to bear in mind is the intervention that's that's taken place from the central banks. And we believe if you look at historical relationships between spread levels or the compensation you get for the the risk of lending to businesses, uh, there's been a bit of a discrepancy since about 2010 when QE was was really began in earnest. And uh, and that means that you're not getting the same level of compensation that you used to be able to get uh, for the the risk and and the actual leverage in built in these these balance sheets. So we think there's a lot of sensitivity uh, to economic turbulence. And if the outcome or the outlook for a lot of these corporates is not benign, then some of them can tri- could trip over. And so I guess from my perspective, to, to summarise that, it would be a case of a rising tide has lifted all boats. And we've seen strong performance from uh, a lot of credit markets and a lot of individual corporates. But ultimately, there's going to be a lot of whirlpools out there that, that could drag a few of these down over the next 12 to 18 months. So the way, the way we think about markets today um it's a bit of a minefield. So, so coming into 2020, we were uh, the most defensive we had been in our portfolios for some time. And then um, come around about March, April, uh, we made a big alloc- asset allocation switch. And but, you know, I think, you know, our policy around March, April was really to stick to those defensive through the cycle uh uh, type businesses where the the revenue line and the bottom line would be somewhat resilient, and I, and I still think that's the right uh, the right approach. Uh, having said that, you know we can't ignore some of the good news on the vaccine front. So I think it is sensible to look at you know some of the uh, corporates or, or credits that could really benefit uh, from a, a, an uptick in the economic cycle. So you know having some some sort of allocation towards cyclicals. Uh, I think also makes sense. But, you know, longer term, you know, we think that interest rates, inflation are likely to remain lower for longer. And so with that in mind, you know, we touched on some of the structural issues already like debt, demographics. That's not gone away. And if anything, some of those things have gotten significantly worse over the course of this year. So with that in mind, you know, an allocation towards AAA rated government bonds such as US Treasuries also makes sense as a ballast to the portfolio. So if we set aside those minefields and the whirlpools that you were just talking about, there is a reassuring tone to what you're saying. Um, And with the pandemic likely to prevent governments from raising taxes and central banks from raising base rates, could we see a surprisingly large economic boom once the vaccines are disrupted? And if that were to be the case, what could this mean for bonds? Yeah, so in terms of the economic outlook, um, I think what people have to understand is that there's been, you know, as Harry highlighted, there's been a lot of economic scarring, a lot of damage done to the jobs market. And so we are looking to governments now to 
provide some sort of fiscal stimulus. And at the moment, you know, in America, there seems to be a bit of a fiscal gap. Um, the Republicans are reluctant to do anything soon um, in this lame duck uh, period we have with Donald Trump. And um, and even under a Biden presidency, because we have a, um, a divided Congress, um, the kind of sti stimulus that some were hoping for in the event of a, a, a blue wave, uh, i.e. the Democrats taking control of both houses, that, that now seems to have gone on the back burner. So, you know, the fiscal stimulus won't be as big as many were hoping. And so, you know, with that in mind, um, you know, economic activity may not be as explosive. But nevertheless, I think with base effects, uh, you could see um, a decent pickup in, in growth as we go into the second half uh, of next year. But then, you know, longer term, we've got to start thinking about how sustainable that growth is, because what we keep on seeing over the last decade plus, uh, because of the world being so indebted, is that any fiscal stimulus we have typically lasts for, you know, one to two quarters at, at best. And then a lot of those structural problems come back and weigh like a heavy hand on economic activity uh, once again. So I think we could have that window where we do see growth really pick up. But then beyond that, I think the outlook is uh, is is somewhat uncertain. Yes, I think I think I think that's exactly right. You have to uh, look at the short term uh, growth dynamic and the long term dynamic. And whilst the short term, as Ariel mentioned, from the year over year base effects could be very very positive, there are there are challenges to to the longer term uh, growth prospects for the global economy, and that's what policymakers are looking at. And actually, we heard from the UK Chancellor Rishi Sunak, and he was saying that in twenty twenty one. UK unemployment will probably hit around 7.6%. That's that's pretty damaging. That could be a big headwind for, for the consumer, a big headwind for spending. And in the United States, we still have around 21 million people receiving uh, unemployment benefits of some description. So there's still the big challenges uh, to you know that we face uh, in, in, in markets and the economy. And that's why uh, people are looking to the next steps that governments and central banks may take. And we're hearing more and more about uh, modern monetary theory. We're hearing more and more about policy innovation, uh, the potential for, for helicopter money uh, to, to solve or, or fight the next downturn, uh, or even debt jubilees. And these are things that people will have to consider. But ultimately, from our perspective, we're not quite there yet. Um, and there are certain hurdles to, to doing some of those uh, some of those policies. For example, under the Federal Reserve Act, modern monetary theory is, is still currently illegal. And so we think another crisis would be required to, to delve further down that rabbit hole. And that means we could see a lot of volatility come over the next you know, 24 months uh, on the basis of uh, periodically not having quite enough stimulus uh, or potentially uh, having uh, you know, a wave of stimulus come and, and quash any volatility that you do see. So that push and pull is something that we think we'll, we'll witness uh, over the, the, the months and years to come. The other thing I would add, just to add to, uh, to, to Harry's point, you know, just in terms of market signals, uh, the US 10-year today is sitting still comfortably below 1%. So we've had this phenomenal rally in risk assets across equities, credit, but yet government bond yields continue to be, you know, somewhat subdued, especially, especially in Europe, where rates uh, in many markets are still deeply negative. So do not ignore the uh, the powerful messages from government bond markets. Um, and they do seem to be saying that longer term, the inflation outlook and, and the growth outlook is somewhat subdued. 
So you mentioned uh, the base rates there, Ariel. So in your opinion, with base rates pinned to the floor in many countries, um, where could bond investors look to try and earn a reasonable return? Yeah, so I think the kind of Goldilocks picture of not too hot, not too cold that we've had for a lot of the last decade, I think a lot of that's still intact. Um, the other thing you've got thrown into the mix is this real determination by governments um, in the developed world to you know, do their utmost to backstop a lot of the corporate sector. So with that in mind, um, I think corporate credit still looks OK. Uh, parts of high yield still look OK. Uh, investment grade, you know, with the idea that yields aren't going to go up much, you know, still getting uh, a, a nice pickup over over government bonds. So, you know, that kind of triple B, double B area uh, within the credit rating spectrum is is still a place uh, we continue to like. And then within uh, sovereigns, you know, I mentioned having that that ballast that allocation to high quality AAA rated bonds to help protect your portfolio, especially in kind of medium and long dated paper where there's still reasonable yields to be had in the likes of the US and uh, and Australia. And then, um, you know, over and above that, there are selective opportunities within emerging markets, the likes of uh, Chinese government bonds, um, you know, Russian government bonds, I think also look interesting. But you, you've got to be very, very selective uh, within emerging markets as well. Yeah, I'll just, I'll just pick up on one thing that, that Ariel said, and I think this is this is important. Whilst we have some sympathy towards the fact that certain government bond markets across across the developed world in particular uh, on low or negative yields may look, may look unappealing, uh, certain parts of the sovereign space definitely look attractive to us. And the fact that yields are at all-time lows uh, or close to in many of these markets doesn't actually prevent them from acting as, um, I guess, safe havens or a port of storm uh, during volatile periods. If you take the Australian 30-year, for example, and this isn't a prediction, but it's, it's just simple bond maths. I mean, if, if from 1.8% yield or so on the 30-year Australian government bond, if you saw a 1% fall, you know, you're going to be generating 25% total returns uh, on, 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 on those bonds. And so there is, still, uh, there is still juice left, there is still total returns left, and it still can act as ballast uh, to to a portfolio and, and serve you well uh, during bouts of volatility. So uh, so we think that that's underappreciated at the moment. It looks like we could be in for a little bit more volatility in the short term and potentially the long term as well. But what I have gathered is there is a really reassuring message there that there are still a lot of places to find these returns. That is probably all we have time for today. So thank you both for joining me on the podcast and thank you to everybody at home for listening. Thank you. Thank you.